It's episode 68 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Joining me today are J.P. Breen and Ryan Topp. And hey, guys, did you enjoy the uh, week off we had? Good Thanksgiving? Yes. Good good Thanksgiving, yes. But we didn't really take a week off the way you did because we recorded a podcast. Sure. And, you know, we did that. Talking, talking minor leaguer. So, J.P., you have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was nice to get home and see the family. It was actually a little surprising that uh, it, you know, being in being back in Wisconsin, it didn't end up snowing, and then driving back south, like they got a lot of snow, and so it was just really weird to like hear about all the weather that we were supposed to have in Madison, and then they kept saying it was going away, and we ended up staying an extra day to kind of miss the traffic, and they said it was going to snow a little bit, and then when we drove south, and we were like snowed more than a little bit, that's for sure, and it was actually a, a rough drive home a little bit. That's yeah, funny. I, I'm right on the edge of where that snow hit. So we had snow, but driving to work on Monday, like I drove out of the snow completely. It was the oddest oh, thing to go yeah. a few miles north from from where we're at. So, but yeah, hopefully, uh, I don't know. We don't get any more blizzards the rest of the winter. Just light snow always on the weekend so everybody can clear it, right? No, blizzards <laughs> during the week. During the week, Steve. Ryan wants a day's off. So is this, when, uh, is this how we get like that stupid commercial that's happening over and over about like they get the flood alert on their phone and they go, Oh, I can't do Thursday. I could yes, do Friday. Exactly. That is that's winters in Wisconsin. So um anyways, hey, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate, email questions to Milwaukee's.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash mketailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive the monthly minor league extra podcast. One just came out. Another one's in the Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Not this week, but probably, I think, the week after. JP? Yep. So, yeah. Uh, subscribe to that, and you can get those uh, podcasts uh, as well. Uh, Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing. From Dragon Flute to Block Party to Fantasy Factory IPA, K4 specializes in English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. Thursday, December 7th, Carbon 4 is releasing Sour Fantasy Factory. Hey, Amy will be all about that. My wife loves sours. They're really the only kind of beer shade we'll drink. Some browns, but... Really just sours, because they don't taste like beer. So No, they are different. So uh, now that Raspberry Fantasy Factory is back in the tap room, they thought they'd have some fun and sour this baby up to see what ensues. It's a limited batch, so you need to visit the brewery for this one. No howlers, no growlers. Sit there and drink it. Howlers? How, that's the 32-ounce. Oh, is that? I didn't know that had a, a different name. Howlers are the 32, and then the growlers are 64 ounces. Mm, okay. So, um, also get twenty percent off of merch in the Carbon Four Web Store with the promo code MKE Tailgate. Remember to visit the brewery on Kinsman Boulevard or find their beer at your local retailer. As always, check out carbonfour.com for more information. Carbon Four Beer Brilliance. Milwaukee's Tailgate is also sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, a professional-sounding podcast, right? Professional? Get a professional-sounding host. Yeah, get a professional-sounding host. And then also check out the MixPre-3 and MixPre-6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so we had, I guess, some news this week. Things happened. Things, ba- kind of baseball roster things happened. Yeah, it, it's getting to be that time. 
So uh, to start out with, Eric Kratz, Hernan Perez, and Tyler Saladino all agreed to uh, one-year deals avoiding arbitration. So they'll potentially be back next season. Yeah, you would think that there's a pretty good chance. I mean, Perez seems virtually a lock to come back. Saladino seems like there's a decent chance he wouldn't be back on you know a major league deal. It, I, it would sort of depend on how that would all work out. But Well, we'll get to a move that happened as well this week, and that probably impacted a bit. That can, depending on what else they do. But yeah, and then Kratz, I still feel like, and I don't know, JP, if you're in the same boat, I still think they're going to look for an upgrade to Eric Kratz on the market this winter. They're not settled with Kratz and uh, and Pena as a final thought. I think they're still going to continue to look around. But if it turns out that they don't get somebody they like better than Kratz, now they have him around. Yeah, I think that's always the plan. They were talking about the fact that uh, even if you tender a contract, if they don't end up being the, on the Major League squad, you aren't on on the hook for the entire thing. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in, in these sorts of things. Uh, I think that was kind of the idea with Tyler Saladino as well. Uh, the idea that he, he, I think has a, has an option remaining, but the fact that he might not be able to make the 40 man roster, depending on what happens this winter, kind of same rationale, but I do, I agree that they're going to definitely be looking. Yeah. Kratz, for instance, he has 300,000 guaranteed whether or not he makes a roster next season. Right. So, and then if he does, he gets an additional, what, six? It's uh, 1.2 million. Okay, so he um, gets an additional nine. Yeah, and then Perez was a deal for 2.5, and Saladino was 887,000. Okay, Saladino, that must have been what I was thinking of. The Saladino one was about nine. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so those guys can all potentially be back next year, or at least they'll be in spring training. Yeah, they'll be around in camp. They will be guys who are potential options for the club and obviously Perez is going to be on the roster regardless that you would is. you would think as much as it pains Andy he'll he'll be around yes so uh guys who were non-tendered uh Dan Jennings Xavier Cedeno and Jonathan Scope and that was the big one that everybody was kind of debating was whether or not Scope would be back and we got our answer well I mean as far as if we deal with the other ones first a couple of bullpen lefties who Dan Jennings, his main value was that he could, he was kind of a flexible arm. He could go multiple days in a row. You didn't necessarily have to worry about him facing right handers. He could, he could throw against right handers, but it sort of became clear as the season went on. You didn't really want him in high leverage, and they didn't use him in high leverage. I don't think he made any postseason rosters, right? I don't believe he did. I'd have to go back. Sedano did, and Jennings did not. So, I mean, so it was pretty clear that they didn't really trust Jennings to be a shutdown arm. He was more Jennings. Jennings had the hot start and faded because Jennings had the hot start when Boone Logan came back and struggled. They said, we don't need Boone Logan because he's not going to do anything that Jennings isn't already providing. But Jennings utility, again, was more. It wasn't that he was so great against lefties, which is what. Cedeno was for a, a good chunk of the regular season. He was actually pretty good on lefties. Yeah, he had like a one thirteen ERA against lefties in fifteen appearances. Right, it was basically all he had. He was yeah, and he was really just a lefty one out guy. Your classic loogie. So I mean, those guys were not in great position to be brought back because neither one really offered. Cedeno really just offers the ability to get lefties out and really not do much else. 
And Jennings was, you know, the opposite of that where he had the other utility, but he wasn't particularly great at getting lefties out. And if you're going to be a left-handed reliever, you kind of have to be good at getting lefties out. It's kind of part of the deal, right? That's why you, you get a roster spot. So, you know, unless you're really, really good at getting right-handers out, you know, and you're a reverse, reverse platoon split guy. So there just really wasn't much of a reason. So they'll, they will look for guys. You can count on them going out and bringing in some left-handed relievers to fill that spot. And yeah, I was going to say, them. there's there's 36 guys on the 40-man roster right now, so they have room to go out and sign guys. And JP, do you think that's going to be a priority when they're looking for free agents is finding, would you say it's a, a, a stronger left-handed reliever? I mean, obviously you already have Hater, but you're looking for somebody who's a little bit more specific in their skill set? I think that they'll actually be looking at the waiver wire for for a lefty. I don't necessarily think that they're going to be able. I mean, maybe they'll find somebody that they want to invest in that that's a kind of a high leverage lefty, but I don't think they're going to want. A high priority is not going to be a, a left-handed reliever. I mean, Dan Jennings was the guy they got off of waivers, um, and Sedanio was a guy that they were able to get for for not all that much um, at, at the trade deadline. And this is a little bit like what was happening with, um, uh, oh God, what uh, Jared uh, Jared Hughes last year, where we were talking about like, everyone was like, well, he was actually kind of decent. Why are they not bringing him back? And then they were able to go get uh, Matt Albers for cheaper than, than Hughes signed for, for Cincinnati. I think that what the Brewers do, even though that there is so much reliance on on the, the bullpen and we talked about the relievers and we've talked about how important it is. They still kind of follow Steve's mantra with middle relievers that are not the high end ones. You can find them. They're replaceable. Like that's something that you can go and get. What they're doing is putting a much higher priority on top end arms and then kind of the middle ones. They're just like, we're just going to get a ton of them and we're going to like, sh- we're going to shuttle them in and out. We're going to get guys that can be sent down to AAA, and then we're going to move them all over. And that's the thing, too, is those guys would not have offered the option, I don't believe, to be able to send up and down. You were going to be stuck with them on the roster. They want to be able to shuffle through guys, and they only have so many spots in the bullpen where you're going to be able to shuffle through guys. You can only do that at so many places because, obviously, people like Hader, Knable, uh, Jeffress, those guys aren't going up and down. They're on the major league roster. So they're to to make this the shuffling work. Well, you'd even have to think like Corbin Burns at this point, even though they could shuffle him up and down, is not going to be a guy that goes. Up I mean, and down. I could see him getting. I don't think he's going to be a guy who's riding the uh, you know frequent flyer miles no. express between San Antonio. But I wouldn't be shocked if he did go down at some point in a move like that because they just needed to to shuffle things around. When his arm gets tired, yeah, sure. Taylor Williams, you know, I mean, you've got. They're gonna they're gonna be making moves like that with guys, and they need that flexibility. So, yeah, you're not gonna be able to do that with everybody, but you do need certain spots in your bullpen where you can shuffle them, and you can only lock up so many. That's kind of one of the reasons JP brought this up uh, a few podcasts ago about the idea of well, how many bullpen spots can you really afford to lock down because you're gonna need to shuffle guys. So. As a reason and, why they might not sign a big time, another big name free agent who can't be sent up and down. It's also important to look at what they've got in AAA too. They've got Daniel Brown as a lefty coming up through the system that they actually like quite a bit as far as being a lefty reliever. I mean, even just having him in the wings and then um, 
they've got uh oh god what uh quentin torres oh. costume yeah the guy uh, who's hurt yeah and so they've got him that that they've liked in the past they've sent to the afl and they're gonna have guys in the system that they can rely on to be lefty relievers if they really like those sorts of things um but i still do think that what you're gonna see is what we've seen every single off season for i don't know like the last three years it's they're just going to they're going to take a lot of guys off of waivers. Once you start to see relievers go through, you're going to see that they might go and grab a lefty reliever in the rule five draft um, and just kind of try them out in spring and see if that this is somebody that they want to be able to keep on the roster. I doubt it because I don't think they want to be able to commit to somebody that long. But if there is a lefty there, that might be another place that they feel like they can get somebody on the cheap. Sure. But they will be, you do think they're going to be looking to add left-handed relief help. Because like last winter, even though Jennings was the guy who stuck, they did go out and get Boone Logan on a one-year guaranteed contract. But that was all because Boone Logan was somebody that had skills against righties and lefties. He wasn't coming in to be a loogie. Oh, right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think that that's why I'm saying like if they go and target a lefty, it's going to be somebody that they think is a is a quality reliever. Somebody kind of a higher end guy that they can use for a full inning. I don't think that they're going to target and really commit to somebody that is kind of a, a, a loogie sort of a guy. I think that they know they can find those guys for cheap. Okay. Okay. So the, the headliner for all these moves though, this past week was Jonathan scope who the team decided to uh, not offer a contract to. So before we get to Ryan, cause I think he's going to be the one that dominates this conversation. <laughs> JP, what are your thoughts on, I guess both the, the scope acquisition during the season and then their decision to basically cut them loose at this point. I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of thoughts on it. Um, just trying to figure out how I want to structure them. I think it, it's important to recognize that I think largely this is financially related and it's tied into the fact that they like Kesson here a lot and he's going to be at second base and, I know that there are a lot of financial reasons to keep them until May. Maybe there'll be, I mean, they probably won't, but maybe they'll kind of buck the trend and say, you're going to make the opening day roster. Um, maybe. I don't know. Stearns no. has already put the smack down on that. Oh, did he? I didn't miss yeah. that. I'm sure it was something about his defensive development. or now, now, if you want to say the first two weeks, that I'll believe. Right. Yeah. I don't think there's any way he's not, he's not getting up before that the the service clock barrier now the super two thing i would believe he would come up before that easily but there's no way they're bringing him up before those first couple weeks tick off so that they can get the extra year of service yeah. so anyways we'll get back to hero because we do have questions about him coming up but i if it makes i don't it makes me not understand the whole scenario um and it's it's because of of this if 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 this move is actually motivated by the fact that they think he is not good enough to be on the roster, I don't understand why they acquired him in the first place because you didn't have enough time to be able to make any kind of decision. This is functionally saying we made a decision off of like what would be spring training and therefore people and right like andy kind of trolled this on twitter saying that if he was any good then he would have been getting regular playing time and then you would have had more of a sample size but then that literally means that they made a decision in like two weeks in which he wasn't good and that means that the decision that they made and somehow changed their entire like decision process that 
he was good enough to be brought in for the the stretch run and for a year and a half. But after two weeks, they decided, well, nope, actually, maybe we were wrong. And therefore decided that they needed to move on. And therefore, like, I just don't, if that was, if you were somehow making that kind of decision process that quickly, I have no idea why they acquired him in the first place. Um, and if it's financial, great. I, I mean, I guess, but then I just, again, think the move was just kind of weird. You knew that he was going to be $10 million anyway. I don't know if that, like, if they were saying he just was awesome for two months, then they were going to somehow decide that that $10 million was worth it. And then they were going to like try to flip him in the off season. I don't know, but it's just a, it's a weird situation in which I don't understand the thought process behind any of it now. My only thought with that, and I'll just address that real quick, is I kind of feel like they made the move for both Mustakas and Scope with the idea that like one of these two guys could flame out. We want to make sure we get one guy who's going to improve the roster. But you don't have the, two months isn't anything about flaming out. I, well, no, it, it's flaming out in that time that they're on the team this season. So even though they had control of scope beyond the season, they didn't feel like that was an actual asset they were that worried about. They just wanted to make sure for the remaining, was it eight weeks? Yeah. And into the playoffs that they got a guy who was going to be a contributor on the team. So they stocked up on a couple guys and then they played the grouping that was actually productive. That's and, my guess. And, I don't know and, if that's true. Then why trade him? I hold on. I get, I get, I get VR that he was just kind of a guy that they were like, you know what, where it's an internal improvement at second base. Who really cares? Um, Luis Ortiz, a guy with a down arrow next to his name, a lot of questions about him, whether or not he's going to move into the bullpen. That's fine, but you could still have used him to go and get a relief arm or something like that. It's not like he didn't have value. Gene Carmona was one of the most exciting players down in in rookie ball that actually has value that somebody wanted. That was actually one of the main pieces that enabled them to go and get scope, which again, if you wanted to just trade him because you wanted to go get an upgrade, there was a better way to do that to go get somebody that you actually valued. So, I understand what you're saying, but even in that case, then that's just a terrible use of resources to just go and get somebody because you wanted a warm body to be there for two months. Well, okay. So first off, I do agree with Steve on this. Shockingly, I do agree with Steve that I think that when they made those moves, they were looking at this as covering their bases and it wasn't just covering that second base spot. It was also remember Travis Shaw had been hurt late in July and had been not as effective and he started just as the trade deadline neared to started to hit for power again. He really had not been hitting for much power for most of the summer to that point. He got off to a good start, I believe, but then didn't hit for a lot of power after coming back from having, what was that, the, whatever that injury was. So I think they were trying to cover their bases and get, hey, we need, we need some redundancy here because they, you know, theoretically maybe might have ended up having to play Mustakis and Scope on a fairly regular basis if Shaw proved to not be healthy. Well, and remember, Scope was playing shortstop because Arcia was down initially as well. And that was that was the other part of bringing Scope in was he had done it so much in the minor leagues that he did offer that ability for them to be able to fill in and cover their bases at shortstop as well. Not on a, a super regular basis, but they they definitely did turn to him a little bit there. My issue with this, and I do think that this is financial, when JP says that, I think that this is financial. This is not wanting to spend the $10 million, which to me then asks, brings up larger questions about, well, what else are they planning to do then? Because as it stands right now, they're projected to have a payroll a little bit under $100 million. 
just slightly on the low end of 100 million. They were with scope going to be about 110. And then they, you know, they also non-tendered Jennings and and Cedeno. So they they've given themselves a little bit more room there even still. So now you're looking at a payroll of around 100 million and if you're not going to bring scope back because of the money and because of having her waiting in the wings and maybe they think they're going to get to him, you know, much quicker here. I still sort of have a problem with it because like JP said, you're making these evaluations on such a small sample. And if you were going to go out in the first place and get scope and, and, and do that, I sort of can't believe that they really would make a decision based on what they saw. And I know this was a very popular move among Brewer fans in general. This is something people wanted because they were sick of scope. People wanted scope gone. That was, it was the very popular opinion of just, I'm sick of watching him fail and strike out and look ugly. So be off my team. Which is after wanting scope when he wasn't on the team. Right. And I, I, my dumb hypotheticals that I've been running out there the last week on Twitter, like I, I sort of feel like if scope was a guy who the Brewers fans hadn't seen fail in those couple months at the end of the season, he would be a guy that had he been you know, non-tendered by the Orioles and now was sitting out on that market, people would be like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd happily take him on my team because look how good he was you know, in 2017 and we could get that rebound and then, you know, get a guy for, you know, a very low cost. And I know that the 10 million, the 10 million feels like a lot, but again, we're talking about a one year commitment and are you really going to get, so if they do decide to go out on the second base market, I don't think you're going to get a better combination of upside and salary than what scope was giving you. Because it was just a one-year commitment. It was this one-year $10 million commitment. And these other guys who you know potentially could put up numbers value-wise as good as scope are lesser than you – know, they're going to require more in contracts. They're, you're going to have to pay more for a DJ LeMahieu than what scope gets, right? And what scope went one-year $10 million. You're going to have to pay more for those guys to get that same amount of value. So they must – it really does have to be that they're they're banking on Hira and just didn't want to just didn't want to put themselves in the position of paying Scope that money, but basically paying Hira ten million dollars in his first season. But but you don't. That the problem then is you don't have depth. You're you're cutting out a decent part of the depth. Well, you have Perez, you have Saladino. I mean. Shaw yeah. has slid over, even though Shaw wasn't mentioned as a guy that would play second base. But Perez and Shaw, they they will never. Sorry, Perez and Saladino, and they will never. They will never hit. Dubon's back this season. Sure, but he, again, none of these guys will hit like Scope is capable of. Well, Scope, Scope had power. Scope was not a good hitter. Um, yeah, but I mean that power was so prodigious that when it was working and the rest of it kind of was just adequate. He was a way, way above average. Yeah, but power offensive second baseman. You know, you get some pretty big swings with power output. So I think they saw what the the downside is of that. And again, when they had other options coming up and ten million dollars, they just didn't think it was worth. That. Well, and there's a question about that, isn't there? About his offensive profile. Whose scopes? Yeah, didn't we have a question about that? Oh, there was a a long question. They wanted to go through what his profile was using fan graphs or whatever. That's from Chad Ferris on Patreon. 
he wanted you to break that down, Ryan. Are you going to do that? I, I, I brought up the numbers so that we could do this. Okay, if you want to go through it. I mean, So what are, are we looking at? So you're looking at a low walk, high no, strikeout. No, no, no. What website are you looking oh, at? Oh, I'm on Fangraphs, as Chad asked us to be. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you are looking at, and, and this isn't a surprise to anybody, he is a low walk, high strikeout, high power guy who's generally going to put up, he'll only kind of put up decent averages just because he's got enough speed to be able to, you know, leg out some, some infield hits that way. But other than that, that's, that is kind of what he is. You're, you're getting him because he hits for a prodigious amount of power at second base. Um, but again, like this year, there, there was a lot of talk of his trending being down, that he is trending downward in terms of, you know, having a 3.8% walk rate in 2017 or 2018. But that's not, you know, he had a lower walk rate in 2016 at 3.2. Like, everything was kind of on the low end of his range here this year. He Or the high end for you know, strikeouts and the bad end of the range. But it wasn't, he's not drastically outside of what his norms are. He was just, he had a bad all-around year in, in 2018. And you're talking about a 27-year-old guy. He'll be 27 this year. Who's, you know, shown the ability to be like a, five win player in the past i mean jp are you bullish on a guy who has that much trouble putting the bat on the ball he's got you know one loud tool in his power but other than that he doesn't show a lot of patience at the plate or anything yeah he doesn't he's a guy who is a he's a hit ball seed ball guy and and we've known that for a long time i mean that's the guy he was last year when he hit 293 with 32 homers he's that the one thing that changed with Jonathan Scope this past year wasn't anything to do with his walk rate. It wasn't anything to do with the fact that he can hit for power. It was the fact that his average was down. And he's a guy who, for three straight years, had a batting average on balls and play above 300. And this past year, he had one of 261. And it's something that vastly impacts his average, obviously. And it's something that, if that goes back to what his career norms is, which is about 300, and that even takes into the fact that he was terrible this year in terms of his batting average on balls and play takes into 2014 when he had a bad year as well in terms of that, when he was first kind of betting in as a rookie, but all of those things, if that comes back up to, to where it is, he's a guy who's actually hitting kind of 272, 280 with 25, 30 homers over the course of an entire year. And at second base, that's way above average. What people are going to talk about. And I, and I didn't see this on Twitter, but Oh, uh, talking about this beforehand is a lot of people talking about his hard hit percentage, his his hit rate, all of those things. Uh, and there are multiple things that are important to note if we're talking about those sorts of numbers on on uh, fan graphs or people who are using StatCast to be able to see those sorts of things. Um, number one, there have been no studies whatsoever to be able to show that those things are predictive. Zero. There are there. Yes, maybe you don't like the fact that the, the numbers trended down this year compared to last year. He had injuries this past year. He had sporadic playing time. And there's no evidence to be able to suggest that those things are predictive from year to year. So if that's the grounding to be able to say what he's going to do in 2019, the statistics don't really bear that out in terms of being able to use that for your analytics. So I don't put that much stock in it. The other thing to be able to, to recognize as well is last year, his batting like his his hard hit percentage or his his average exit velocity. A lot of people have looked at that. It was actually better than Joey Votto's, which 
some people would say, wow, that's kind of weird. Joey Votto actually wasn't that good in terms of his exit velocity last year. And that really speaks to questions about exit velocity being a value metric in terms of being able to see what your numbers are going to be more than it does. Maybe that Joey Votto isn't good because we know that Joey Votto is good. I heard the Brennemans um, are big on exit velocity. Yeah, they're big. big the, the, Brennemans, the Brennemans are big on exit velocity. I would imagine that they probably would be if somebody told them that. Um, if they told them that Joey, Joey Votto's was bad, too. They'd be like, oh, yeah, see? <laughs> so there are a lot of things that go into those sorts of numbers that are are tough. The one thing to look at for um, kind of hard hit percentage in terms of fan graphs, those things are not... Th those things are actually much more driven by um, uh, kind of look and see sorts of data, right? I mean, those are arbitrary cutoffs. And so there are a lot of things to be able to play in those that are really difficult to kind of ascertain to what he's doing. And it becomes really difficult when you're talking about power because everybody wants to say, well, maybe his hard hit percentage is down. Therefore, he's not making a lot of contact. But his his home run per fly ball is actually better than league average. And it has been for years. And so if you're looking at hard hit percentage, maybe it means he doesn't actually hit a lot of balls on the ground all that hard, which doesn't necessarily impact what his power potential is going to be because it. If you're looking at the numbers in terms of what people are looking at in terms of hard hit percentage, uh, actually, it does show that on average, if he puts a ball in the air, he's putting it out of the park vast uh, way more than the league average year on year. And so I have a lot of problems with those with those sorts of uh, analysis just because they tend to be used when um, they tend to be used to be able to support what your eye sees. And when they don't support what your eye sees, um, they're kind of thrown by the wayside is not helpful. Well, and there's a lot uh, of that going on with scope. There's a lot of we saw it. It was ugly. Get him out of here. And I mean, it, and, and it was bad, but it was bad for like two weeks. And then he hardly played. Right. Which like I they talked about the fact that when he came in, he was pressing so hard because he hadn't really been on a competitive team and he was trying to just come in and be a guy that everybody was expecting. And he had so much power, so much pressure on his shoulders. They talked about that a lot early in the year and they asked him about it. And he said, yeah, I do feel pressure. I'm trying to work through it. And maybe having an entire spring training would have been nice. But this is not all that dissimilar to me to a situation that we had with the Brewers a couple of years ago in which uh, we parted ways with Scooter Jeanette and everybody was actually pretty happy about that. And then Scooter Jeanette has now gone to Cincinnati and he is absolutely smashing the ball and has progressed as a hitter. And people have said, well, Brewers made a mistake there. And that's been a feather, uh, or not a feather in the cap, but that's been a demerit for the, the Stearns re regime is saying that, look, you let this player go and now you have questions at second base. And so that's a terrible decision for the organization where if you looked at exactly what was happening for for the statistics that actually made a whole lot of sense so i i just don't i don't understand the decision to cut bait on the fact and basing it off of statistics that obviously were so difficult last year to be able to put your finger on because of playing time, the fact that it was sporadic, the fact that he had injuries, and then all of the good production was when he was seeing pretty much every single day playing time with Baltimore before he left. Yeah, and like I think a lot of what's going on here is it is comparing him to that season and you're going, okay, what was he in 17? And like, like his O-swing percentage. His O-swing percentage, he was swinging at uh, 35.9 percent of pitches outside of the zone in 2017. Okay, yeah, in 2018 it jumped to 40.6. 
So, yeah, that's like, oh, so he's swinging at like 5% more pitches outside the zone. That's really a problem. That's bad, right? Except you then look at his history and you go, well, in 2016, it was 43.8. And in 2015, it was 42.1. And he was, you know, above average offensively in that time went before that happened. So he's capable of playing. It's an ugly profile, and it's not a profile people like. But he is capable of making that profile be very productive. You know what I mean? So you're looking at a, a, a guy who, yeah, it doesn't look good and it's not what you want. But e- even though it's it's ugly and it's it's suboptimal in terms of approach, it still can be very productive. And I think that's what gets lost. I think there's a lot of focus on, well, it's ugly and it, it's not conventional that way. And it's not what we want in a player in 2018. But he was still able to make it work in, you know for a good chunk of his career. And he's, again, he's only 27. So there's no reason to think that, yes, he's he's going to do some things that are going to be suboptimal and things you don't like, but the overall package can still be incredibly valuable and useful to you. And there's no real reason to think that, you know, he's just done as like a 26, 27-year-old baseball player. Okay, Last, well, well, do you guys think that the Brewers made this move without a plan? No, no, but I so like the last point on this, and then I'll get to that get to that point is from uh, 2015 to 2017, he was uh, better than league average hitter, right? And that and that's fine. But all of this comes from um, I've been surprised for how many stats have been able to try to look at why his season last year was so bad when there are three seasons to be able to show that he's a better than league average hitter. And it does look different than a lot of things that people who really like to look at the stats um, that, that come in. Right. But I think one of the biggest things that they looked at aside from the it, it it's it's in tandem with not wanting to pay $10 million and the fact that there are going to be a ton of second basemen on the market. And I think that what they're actually looking at, and you saw it with the non-tenders, that there are a lot of second basemen on the market. And so really what it could come down to is that they looked at it and said that there are a lot of guys that maybe would give something of similar offensive value for scope and we can get them for cheaper than that, than that $10 million. But then, which again, then I just don't understand why they made the move in the first place, which maybe that's just something I've got to get over, but it's just, it just seems stupid. Well, in fairness to Stearns, he did say like the quotes that came out right after that hot record had Stearns said, this was a mistake and I own it. Like he, he said it was a mistake because it didn't work out. Not because he said it was a bad decision at the time. He says it, it's something that hasn't worked out, which again is like saying these two months were bad. And I was like, then that's a stupid reason to say something didn't work. Hey, yeah, as, I as don't long believe as, that- as long as the process is right. I don't, as long as the process behind the decision is correct, right, Ryan? Yes. I don't believe necessarily that he even believes that, but I think he also realizes that what fans want to hear is when when you did something that didn't work, they want you to fall on your sword and admit fault and then like move well, on. And that's they, what he's doing. They, but they're only okay with that if you actually are doing well besides that. Right. Right. If you're actually doing badly as well, they don't want to hear you say that you're doing badly. It's 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 a situation that I think he knows exactly what he needs to be able to say to move on with it. Yeah. Okay. So Darren Jones on Patreon asked, do you think the Brewers 2019 opening day second baseman is on the current 40 man roster? No. 
I'll say, I'll say yes, just because uh, I th- I think it might be everyone's favorite hero, Aaron Amparo's. I mean, Regardless it, if they actually bring somebody else in. If they bring somebody else in, it still just might be Aaron Amparo's. I yeah. mean, it could be Mauricio Dumont, too. I doubt they would bring him up to be an opening day starter that quickly. I just think it's... Uh, I just think Aaron Amparo's is like the guy who's just always there. You don't think that you know, Dubon is a good camp away from making the roster? In Not the current sure. roster setup, the way that things are set? Nope. No. You think he's further away than that? Okay. I mean, I could see it happening. Okay. So you have yeah. fr- some free agent second baseman available are Brian Dozier, DJ LeMahieu, Drupal Cabrera, uh, Jed Lowry, Josh uh, Harrison. Any I of those Josh guys? Harrison, Josh Harrison is like absolutely my, my type. I, I I know that a lot of people don't like the fact that he had a little bit of a down year last year, but jo- Josh Harrison is the guy that plays a lot of different positions and is a guy that I think would make a lot of sense for the team. Do you think they can get him on a one-year deal? No. Anybody on that list they can get on a one-year deal? Wait a second. I Probably. thought Josh Harrison had an option for this year. Is he a, an, yeah. an actual free agent? What's, he was, he was on a list of free agents that I found. I think Brian Dozier is not going to get a multi-year deal. Would that be an option? I mean, technically. I mean, I'm kind of thinking, like, wouldn't they want to go out and get a guy that can basically maybe float him for a minimum of two months before having to make a decision on Hira? Well, Hira and Dubon, really. Yeah, maybe. I I mean, but so the thing with Josh Harrison is that he actually had his uh, club option declined. It was ten point five million, and they declined to uh, to pick it up. I just looked but, at that, yeah. But he is, but Josh Harrison is just a year off of being basically a two and a half win player. He can play multiple positions. He gives the kind of flexibility that that a lot of teams like. I mean, I don't think I think he would be a guy that would get like a two year, twelve million dollar kind of deal. And the one. The, the one kind of demerit why he wouldn't necessarily make sense for a team like the Brewers is basically he would just do what Aaron Amperes is already doing. That's what I was going to say is, yeah, he just he basically fills that exact same need, though I do think he's better than Perez. So you could upgrade that. But are they looking to upgrade that? I think they they seem to like uh, Hernan Perez like that. He, he seems to be Craig Council's guy. I mean, he also, by all accounts, seems to be a great clubhouse guy, too. Like, it seems like he uh, meshes well with a lot of different people. I was going to say meshes and gels all at the same time, and I couldn't get that word to work. Uh, So I think that we saw that with uh, Orlando Arcia. We've seen that with guys like uh, Brent Suter. We've seen that with guys like guys who work well in the clubhouse. Brewers like having those guys on the bench. Yeah, and because they have to be able to deal with getting sporadic playing time, and they have to be, you know, mentally sort of there so that when they do get into games, they are ready to be on the field and, you know, find ways to be productive. And it's not something you generally see younger players do. You generally see it with guys at least in their mid to high late 20s. So, and Harrison's now of that age, and he seems like a guy. Harrison seems like a guy that's going to stick around in MLB for a long time in that exact role. So, um, okay. So we have a question from Jerry Eldred on Twitter and we've kind of addressed a lot of parts of his question. Um, but he does ask, uh, what are the, basically what are the chances that with 
the team getting rid of scope that they bring back Mike Moustakis and then move Shaw to second base? Low. I, I mean, I think Moustakis is going to sign a multi-year deal with someone. Is the multi-year deal with Moustakis too difficult with the idea that he isn't that much of an improvement over a Travis Shaw, if any? He's not really an improvement over Travis Shaw. He's just a different sort of player. He's a different player. Yeah, he's a different player, and he gives you another left-handed power bat in the lineup, which I do think does matter. And they're going to be a little bit light, especially depending on what they decide to do with uh, with Eric Thames. They might be a little light on left-handed power in the lineup going into next year with you know just Shaw and whatever Thames is going to give you, plus, you know, obviously Yelich, but... I was, I was going to say, you're kind of forgetting the guy. But we don't know. I mean, are we counting on Christian Yelich being a power monster now? Is that just, do we think he's a, a mid-30s home run guy or not? This would be my favorite thing if you are going to try to walk back power expectations after talking last year about how his power was going to take a huge step forward. That would be like my favorite thing. I was expecting mid to high 20s home runs. I wasn't expecting close to 40, you know? Wow, many, but hitting up, 30 again isn't going to be... I, I wouldn't be shocked. I don't think... But that's, you know... I mean, do you think 30 and 36 is that big of a difference? No. One a month? Yeah, I mean, right. Like, that's just not that... I think I think somebody like Asdrubal Cabrera makes a lot of sense. Oh, on just a one-year deal? I, I, I don't know if he'd get a... Well, I bet you he'd probably get a couple of years. I mean, he was actually not bad last year. Um, but the one thing that you like about somebody like Cabrera is he can actually play a little bit of shortstop too, right? I mean, like, so it's he somebody, can take a glove and go stand there. Yes. Same way that Jonathan scope could take a glove and stand there. He's and scope actually happen. had the athleticism and range that he could be a little bit more credible at shortstop. Nope. Wait, so you just scope think he looked better there? Not that he was playing it any better. I just scope like a guy who's got some lateral quickness and move like as Drupal looks like a statue scope is not quick like i mean I, like we saw him try to run to first base last year and he is not that quick i think the one thing with this Drupal cabrera is that means when like right kessinger comes up like cabrera still has a role then i mean he's a guy who hit uh he had 23 homers last year he was basically a, in a two and a half win player last year. He hit two six uh, two sixty two with twenty three homers. In a lot of ways, he is offensively the last three years has hit tw- over twenty home runs a couple of times, but has a higher batting average. Um, he's a guy that is a really good veteran to just step in and can play multiple positions. Uh, I think he is somebody that probably gets a two year deal just because. I mean, didn't. Uh, didn't Daniel Descalso get a two-year deal? Like, oh God, if if like guys like that get two-year deals, I don't know. But it's the only reason he might not is once he actually went to the Phillies, he kind of just tanked it a little bit. But I mean, he really, yeah, he had a one twenty-eight OPS plus in uh, in New York, and then when he got to the Phillies, eighty. Right, but that's like that's like making a decision off of him in the ba- in the same way that we were saying don't make that decision based off of scope. So right, yeah, I'm, and it's 185 plate appearances. You're not talking about a whole lot of wiggle room there. But he had also been that 128 was more of an outlier, really, than the 80 is. Like his high end offensive production had not been generally that good over time. Yeah, I guess 117 in 2016. 
I was going to say he's had at least had a one. He's at least been league average in terms of runs created. He's been over a hundred for four straight years. Yeah. He's a solidly above average big well, I mean, hitter who can play in the middle infield. So that's, right, that's something that's what he is. he's, he's solid. Okay. So after all of this discussion, we finally settled on the fact that Keston Hero is going to be your second baseman for 2019. So <laughs> for starting in, in, uh, the third week in April. Yeah, starting the third week in April. Uh, so Tim Young on Patreon asks, is Hira's leg kick going to be a problem uh, against MLB pitching? It's working so far, but I'd guess he tweaks it in his first year in the majors. What say you? JP, this is your area of expertise. You are the leg kick guru. Am I? Well, I this is different than a toe tap, correct? Oh, right. Yeah, leg kick. Leg kicks are different than toe taps. I was gonna. I, as if I, this is my expertise, do you want me to say that I don't care about it? <laughs> Based on our conversations about the toe tap and how I just don't care. Uh, no, I don't see it this being an issue. It is somewhat unconventional, though, isn't it? For big league hitters, big league hitters. I mean, I guess, but w- that's based on the fact of of what? Like, what's the theory behind that being a problem? Well, don't uh, Yelich has a load where he kind of brings his leg up and back. Absolutely, and they were actually working with uh, with um, Orlando Arcia to actually start his leg kick earlier this past year to basically hang his foot there until the until the pitcher was actually starting his motion. So it's basically it's, a timing mechanism, right? You're looking at him doing it as a timing thing. Yeah, it's a timing mechanism, and the reason that a lot of people don't like high leg kicks is because it's too many moving parts and actually moves your hands too much. But Keston Hira doesn't have any problem with setting his load or getting through the zone quickly. I know the smart, the smart scouts I read well, who and else? hear Baez, from, they ha- talk about... Javi Baez, he really struggled with that leg kick this year, right? But oh, like yeah. when you look at guys like when you look at guys like Baez who, who have a high leg kick, you see their their arms are everywhere. The bat is moving everywhere, True. right? Like it, it Keston Hira is a guy who has a high leg kick to be able to go, but his hands are quiet and they're quick. So all that really matters is, does the guy get his hands and body to a point when the delivery is coming in time to be able to do what he needs to do to make good contact on the ball? Does the guy do that, right? I mean, the rest of it is all kind of, that's always what smart scouts that I read and and listen to podcasts of. I don't know. I assume it's kind of like like pitching. I, th- I remember Doug Thorburn, Doug Thorburn wrote on Baseball Prospectus years ago. He was, he was breaking down Chris Sale's mechanics because M- Sale was a guy who it seemed like he had really wild mechanics. Right. You know, it twists and a lot of movement and everything. But once he actually was making his approach to the plate, it actually was a lot quieter. You'd see his shoulders squared. His arm came through in the same path every time he delivered. He had the same plant and follow through. So even though there's a lot of other stuff going on, as long as he hit those specific areas with consistency and uh, I think kind of the mechanics that were, were sound, it really didn't matter what else was going on before and after that. Well, guys who have wild yeah. swings, usually if they're any good at hitting... Yeah, it may look weird at various points of the swing, but if you actually isolate on when the bat is traveling through the zone, it's coming through on the on a normal path every time. It's consistent. The you know the hip rotation is right. All that stuff is going. It just all looks really weird, maybe before and after the swing. But well, I would say this is something that people who listen to the minor league podcast or have listened to us in the past, like I. I tend to compare things to golf swings a lot just because that's where I, I know a lot more about the mechanics and things. And 
it's one of my favorite golfers growing up was Jim Furyk, and he's got the weirdest swing for people who follow golf, right? He's got this big loopy thing. He kind of taught it on his own. His dad and him kind of worked on it growing up, and it was just something that always felt right. But the biggest thing that it does for Furyk is allows him to get on plane better on the way down because that's where it actually matters. And so a lot of the stuff that he does before it is what helps him get into his timing mechanism and helps him get into the right positions as he's getting into the place where he's going to strike the ball. And and for here, it's a lot the same thing. Like the 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 foot is a way to be able to kind of time things. It's something he feels comfortable with, but his hands and his load are, are get, getting in the right spot at the right time, and he gets into the hitting position at the right time. So for me, it's not something that's that's all that important. And for guys I don't think who he has a lot of his, he doesn't have a lot of movement or inconsistency with that leg kick either. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. You're right. It's very it's very consistent. And actually, when he was uh, being drafted, and this is something I've mentioned multiple times. Like I I know teams from. I know like other non brewers teams that said if it wasn't for questions with his elbow, he probably would have gone one, one. Like it was, it was, a, they were saying he's got the best hit tool of anyone in that, in that class. And, and they were sneaky power. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily know how much I believe in the power in terms of like home run stuff, but it's so hard to judge these days in this kind of run environment though. Last year was kind of strange that it seemed like actually the the they were talking about the ball might have gone the other way last year. So I don't really I don't know how to calibrate myself on those things yet. But I mean we're still in the swing plane revolution era, so like I don't I don't think that applies to Kessin Hero. No, it doesn't. He has more of a, a classic, you know, not uppercutty sort of swing. So Oh, by the way, I was gonna bring this up. I actually tagged the Milwaukee's tailgate Twitter account on this because we were talking about Kess, uh, we were talking about Christian Yelich and being uppercutty. He had the he had the sixth lowest swing uh, the uh, his launch angle like in terms of his swing in all of baseball. So he's not oh so uppercut. apparently he wasn't he he did not join the swing plane revolution like uh, had been speculated. You keep right. saying that, and it's like if you look, Yelich does not have a high follow through on his swing. No, I so I don't I know where he'd be getting he that uppercut. Something, he did something to change the path was what they said, but I don't know. Does he start who, really? Who is they? I can't remember where I saw this, but it was. It, it was I didn't imagine this. He well, Ryan Ryan battles the internet as one sentient being. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the hive mind is just one one being for him. Ryan, the algorithm knew Ryan would be looking for something in terms of swing plane and Christian Yelich. It gave him something and I'll put it. He probably saw it on Facebook. Ryan, Ryan on Twitter is like the end of that second Matrix movie when he's sitting with the the white room with the the one guy explaining everything to him and it made no sense. Yeah, that's Ryan's Neo in that 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 sense. All right, continuing on. Okay. what do we want to do? Okay, let's see. Uh, what kind of return would be reasonable for Chase Anderson or Eric Thames? That's from PV Brew Crew on Patreon. I don't think you'd get anything for Eric Thames, considering um, somebody like CJ Cron was just uh, waived and got picked up on waivers for free. Uh, Chase Anderson, I have I have no sense of that whatsoever. I don't think it'd be high. I I'd say I don't. Yeah, I don't even know somebody that it like a. Triple A reliever, not enough to make it worth sending them out. I think is the issue. Yeah, like I wouldn't. I would. I would keep even if you're not high on Anderson. I would keep him just for the depth because you know you're going to go through that many arms in the season. And if you catch a hot season on him, you know, ride it. 
Yes, I mean he when he's good really does prevent runs. Like it, which we've it seen works. once. We have seen it. Yes, we've seen it once. But he consistently sort of outperforms his peripherals. We talked about that with Jonathan Judge last year. That like he is a consistent guy in terms of outperforming his peripherals. So if he can figure out a way to be a little bit better peripherally, you could really see some decent numbers in terms of run prevention, like we did in 2017. So you know, probably not an ERA that starts with two again. That that seems you know unlikely, but. A, a low to mid threes sort of run prevention season that seems perfectly within the realm of possibility, and also he might just he might continue to be a home run machine, and that you know that might just be where we're at with him. And they're now getting to the end of this is their last year of commitment to him. They do have two option years left after this, so if a team wants to kind of take that on and say, hey, we you know we value that and it gives us the ability to control him, but we don't have to commit to it. There's a lot of value in that for some teams who are potentially trying to, you know, round out a rotation with a, you know, fourth starter type, which is, I think where he is at this point. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't see them trading Anderson. I'd be really surprised at this off season. And Thames just doesn't seem like somebody who's going to be a part of a deal. He's too old. Right, and he's just he he breaks down a lot, and you're just not yeah. So yeah. Uh, we have a a non brewer question from uh, the real Tim Sai on Twitter. That's Tim Young, isn't it? Yeah, it's Tim Young. Yeah. Um, he asks, uh, Will Maurer and or Utley get into the Hall of Fame, and who is the next active player to get in? So both those guys I, just retired. I don't think Maurer gets in. I do think Utley gets in. Um, I don't, I don't know about the active player. I'd have to think about that for a. It would have been Adrian Beltre if we did this question when it was asked. Yeah, actually, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this came in a a couple weeks ago. It did. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that Beltre is is probably a good bet. Um, Beltre is a first ballot guy now, right? I mean, people have come around to the fact that he's actually a really great. We've started to see some of the the saber writers. Sabermetric writers are starting to get their ballots. Keith Law and Christina Carl. This is their first year voting, yeah. so it's we have I, we have seen the first internet ballot? Rubicon crossed. You think first ballot for Adrian? I mean, he, dude's one of the top five or six third basemen of all time. He's got like close well, to ninety war. Third basemen never get in though. No, how they, many, yeah, they but how don't. many first? How many first ballot guys are there? Um, I mean, you, he, he is a guy that probably should be a first ballot and maybe we'll have to wait till his second, but man, I mean, Trevor Hoffman almost got in on this first ballot. Yeah. But he's a guy that writers absolutely love. Well, right. Belcher is a guy that writers now have come to appreciate. I think there are more guys who are getting in on their first try at this point. If I think it used viewed as worthy. Yes. I think it used to be a thing where they the guys generally didn't get on their get in on their first try. But now, if you're a Hall of Famer, it's a no doubt Hall of Famer. Yeah, you had weirdos like Bill Conlon who would never vote for anybody on their first ballot because you know, like I mean, what's crazy? Like Robin Yount just barely got in on his first try, right? But he was also coming in with he came in with Ryan and Brett, no with Ryan, Ryan and Brett. So he was he was the third guy but you know i'm just saying he was a no doubt hall of famer that was the thing what made him the no doubt 
Hall of Famer was. He had 3,000 hits, and yeah. so he was going to get in. It was just a question of would he do it on the first ballot, and he did, and he deserved it, and whatever. I disagree with Breen, though. I do think Maurer's going to get in because what there's just so little at catcher. I think he tailed off. I think he tailed off too much. But as we get, hold on, as we get further away, because what people are remembering now are that at the end phase of his career where he did tail off so much, in five years, people are going to look back in five, ten years down the road because he's not going to get in right away. He's going to have to start and build up a a thing. People are going to look and go, oh, right, he was one of the best catchers offensively, defensively we've seen for about six, seven years there. And people are going to look at that and go, look at the catchers in the Hall of Fame. Look how many of them were really did not have long careers. Catchers do not have long careers. So the fact that he tailed off, yes, it's going to hurt. And his overall numbers aren't as good. But I mean, prime, I think you're that's a Hall of Fame prime. Oh, that's no, no, a no, no shit Hall of Fame prime. Yeah, his prime was incredible. But I think, I don't know, was his peak long enough? Sure, for a catcher. I don't know. Compared to compared to other catchers, yes. I, I mean, don't know. Catchers don't have long peaks. I, uh, Jay, they generally get to the big leagues a little bit late. Has Jay Jaffe written anything on it yet? Um, I, I think he assumes he's going to get in. I'd have to. I'd have to. I'd have to go back since he's the one that weighs you know peaks versus total career and stuff like that when he does his. Yeah, his I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what Jay Jaffe says about Joe Mar because for some reason well, I JP, can't figure out. I got blocked by Jay Jaffe. Way to go! I'm not blocked by anybody, and I got blocked by Jay Jaffe. Way to go, uh, JP. Do you do you want to see Maurer in the Hall of Fame? Uh, I don't know. Like, I think that I I don't think I'm a small hall guy in general. Um, I don't. We, I don't. The think two of that, us are. Ryan's the opposite. Yeah. I. Oh, well, I didn't know that about Ryan, but um, Ryan I'm, Ryan thinks everybody should get in. I'm not going to hold that against him too much. Um, <laughs> but uh, what would you say? Yadier Molina, Hall of Famer? No, because I don't think the peak was anywhere near as high as Mowers. And I'm I'm much more of a peak person versus a. Uh, you know, I think you're wrong on that. But no, okay. I mean his peak, M- Molina's peak. You have to rely very strongly on framing defensive numbers. You have to really put a lot of stock into that for him to bridge the gap because he was never. Anything close to the offensive player Mauer was. I think it's awesome. Mauer was a legitimate, really good player. I think Molina's offensive peak is a little higher than you're giving him credit for. But anyways, not anywhere near Mauer. So I so to go back, I was thinking a little bit more about the the current active player. I think uh, probably Pujols is probably the guy that I think the active player who might be the first guy to actually because I think Pujols, no question, going to be Hall of Famer, uh, right? I mean, who who retires first, Pujols or Miguel Cabrera? Pujols. He's a few years older and might be a few years older than that. <laughs> well, I don't know where their contracts are at either. Uh, uh, Miguel Cabrera has like six years left. And it's like he is, <laughs> Miguel Cabrera is signed for the rest of human existence. <laughs> I think if you look at what the, my biggest thing about Joe Mauer is I think everybody remembers 2009 and assumes that's what he was for like seven years. No, but JP, from 2006 to 2013, he hit 327, 410, 473, a 139 OPS plus. And I know that's, that. That's, a, that's a seven-year, eight-year. No, it's eight years. That's an eight-season prime. And you could really extend it back a couple years to his rookie because he came up and was already good from the very beginning. So I know, but I'm I'm suggesting that um, he was one of the best pure hitters 
from that time, right? But you've got you've got this situation. What he hit uh, more than t- thirteen homers uh, once. Yeah, but he was his value was so much in taking walks. Yeah, I know, but that's like what it comes. That's where a lot of this comes down to me is I think he is the the guy when sabermetrics were not all that popular that were like it right like that the, he was the guy and it's a little bit like kind of early joey Votto was this guy as well that like people really clung on to because they wanted to be able to show that walking was just as valuable as being able to get on base i'm not for us I, I and again right joe mauer uh in that prime no 327 batting average i'd say i literally said he was one of the best hitters of the era i like you're arguing against a point i already said <laughs> my point is that he didn't stay catcher long enough. Basically, what you're saying then is his entire value was like seven years. Which, and as far as catchers, Hall of Fame catchers, there are some catchers that are kind of like that, where they really were, they were good for about seven, eight years. And then outside of that, they played, but they were really kind of trash. That's they not. Stayed it. Huh? They stayed at catcher. Um, yeah, I mean, he had to move because he had, you know, brain injuries so like are we gonna hold that against him i'm sure those older guys did too well no 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 but but they weren't allowed to move the same way that mauer was it's not a situation in which we go back and say well you know if he didn't have an injury he probably would have been much better like that's not like the the hall of fame isn't about like how good of a player you were in terms of an abstract it's it's it has become look at the numbers are your numbers good enough to be there for seven years absolutely I have no problem with the fact that he was there for a long time. I think that um, I think personally that neither Yadier Molina nor Joe Maurer should make it. Yeah, I, I think Maurer should be in. I'd have a, a hard time with Molina being in, but I also hate him. So I'm probably not really objective. Yeah, about. I that. was going to say we're, we're not really in a position to judge Molina. No, because I yeah, I hate his guts. So there's that. Um, do you really by the way, Utley, for, like, there are a few really- there are a few players I hate. I hate like his face makes me actually angry. <laughs> like I, he, I have okay. a visceral reaction to his, like just his mug, like seeing his face. I'm like, Arr. Hey, real quick, real just quick. Like is, is Utley a no doubter? I think he will get in eventually, but he's a guy who was not appreciated. He was viewed as like the third wheel of, of, you know, Rollins and, uh, and Howard. And he was the best player of the group, but he got a late start. So he did not. He did not get like regular, regular everyday. Play. Is he going to be kind of like, like twenty? Is he going to be like an Edgar Martinez? Though he didn't quite probably have the the late career that Edgar did. No, and he also has you know now some of this. There will be some people that won't vote for him because he was kind of a dick, and he did some dickish things on the field. Hey, when, when you get a, when you get a rule named after you and it's not a positive rule. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is what I'm saying. But let me a quick question. Uh, Jorge Posada, Hall of Famer? Um, no, because I think that the difference between he was a great hitter who was a, an atrocious defender, and I think we do have enough knowledge of that, that he he would be a borderline candidate who I wouldn't put in because of the bad defense, whereas Maurer was a great defender, uh, a really, really good defender. He and uh, and Molina both obviously were. The difference is Maurer combined having the offense and the defense. Molina was much more reliant on the defense and, you know, Posada almost entirely on the offense. 
So I'd, I'd like to see it be more of an all around thing. But well, for, so Posada um, <clears throat> better wins above replacement for career than uh, than Maurer and had, I would argue, just as good of an offensive peak. Right. And he was able to hold it for longer. I mean, he is he is a, he's a guy for like better than league average offense every single year of his career from 19 from 1997 to 2011 aside from two years he was better than league average as a hitter in the al east right and again yeah that like i respect that and there's a lot there and just like the longevity of being able to do that the problem is i have a real hard time with saying a guy who was that bad defensively and there are people that like uh because there were people ben Lindbergh worked in the yankees front office in that era uh, when they were starting to, the Yankees were kind of on the forefront of understanding pitch framing and all that. And they looked at some of Posada's stuff in that era, and he was beyond dreadful. And like, they, you like, Posada's a guy who, if he was playing now, would have been moved to first base. He wouldn't but have see, played at catcher because he was just, unless he could have somehow improved on some of those things, but he, there was no way he would be considered unplayable now at catcher. See, but the thing that I always get to with somebody like Maurer is I compare him to, um, for example, Mike Piazza. Who was a, in Piazza's his prime was at least a was at least a playable catcher. I don't think he was ever a good defensive catcher, but I don't think he was a sucking chest wound like Basada was. I'm I mean, I I yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm like ready to talk about pitch framing in the mid nineties when like I didn't understand things and was like nine, but um, I, d- I have a hard time, right? This is why I'm a, this is why I'm a small hall guy. Like being able to say that somebody like Joe Maurer is the same caliber as somebody like Mike Piazza, I think is wrong. I think Mike Piazza was by far a better player, but you don't have to say that they're the same caliber to say that one is way over the line and one is, you know, around the line, but on the positive side of it, that's, that's a, that's a false, it's a, it's a false way of looking at it because if you did, if you went by that standard and say, well, nobody's as good as Babe Ruth. So then we should have a hall of fame of Babe Ruth. Like, no, we, we have a standard and some guys vastly exceed it. I know that, but, but I'm not saying that Mike Piazza is like the best player and best catcher that's ever existed. I'm saying that he was like, for me, I think that there are, are, are questions about his defense, but I think that he, for me, when I think about it, yeah, no, no crap Hall of Famer, right? And when somebody like Joe Maurer, like Joe Maurer had people in Minnesota that said he should be traded. Well, that there was some weird, nasty, awful shit that went on in Minnesota with Joe Maurer. That guy got he there were nasty, nasty reporters up there who went out of their way to basically say Joe Maurer is a pansy and really like wanted to hammer him and wanted to like it, it, it turned into this toxic thing where it they they then got pushback on it from especially you know like Aaron Gleeman and the because they're the Minnesota Twins have a have a decent and early uh sabermetric fan base and so there was pushback on that and it turned into a nasty feedback loop where people got really like you remember the the bilateral leg weakness yeah that I became, lived, that I became lived, a punchline i lived in minnesota oh, that's right that. um and 
but like it's one of those it's one of those things that again after after 2009 everybody was like this is who he is now and he wasn't and and i'm not like i don't know like uh, yeah i i suppose we've talked about this for too long but it's it's just one of those things that like for me you have to have so many caveats for Joe Maurer to say that, yeah, but this, yeah, but this, to be able to try to make room for him in in a scenario in which, like, I don't think he was thought of as, like, is Buster uh, Buster Posey a Hall of Famer? Yeah, no doubt. Like, I don't, I don't have his numbers up, so I I can't really uh, look at yeah, it. But he's my, a no doubt Hall of Famer. Say, yes, and I think I, but I think that Buster Posey, a catcher, then. Hey, Joe if Mauer. you go if you go back to Joe Maurer in 2012 and you ask, is he a Hall of Famer? You'd be like, God, yes. He was well, he was on the he's on track. No, I mean he you would have said he his peak already at that point was a Hall of Fame peak easily, and you're looking at him playing out the rest of his his career, and you're going, he's going to be fine. But he didn't end up having you know great numbers late in his career, and he it, it got hurt by the fact he had to move to first base. Yeah, well, we'll see. We have until what twenty twenty three for this debate, or is it twenty twenty four? Yeah, I mean, and as far as the most the current player who's going to get into the Hall of Fame first, I would say it's Pools because as soon as he does reside, decide to retire, it's five years and he's in. I would. I he would is hope. a first ballot Hall. of Fame. I would hope. His There's peak no question. Was insane. And even his first couple of seasons in Los Angeles were still... He was fine. He was good. Yeah, I but, mean, he was... Those 10 years in St. Louis are just otherworldly. Yeah. But to be to be fair, if I'm not worried about the fact that Google Hangouts is closing in 2020 because I'm not sure well, <laughs> I don't know if the Hall of Fame in 2024 is something that's high, high on something that we're worried about. Now, the Hall of Fame at that point is just going to be... <laughs> it'll be political awards or something. I don't know. I'm just... <laughs> Okay, on that note, we're going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Patrons at the Ball and Glove level will receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at mketailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and we're in, on Spotify. We're on Spotify. We are. We are on Spotify now. Uh, you can also leave reviews, which are always entertaining. By the way, I go and read the reviews because I look for like really good ones to pick them out to share with everybody. Uh huh. So leave good reviews. And say mean things about Steve because he loves that. that. That's what I mean by good reviews or, or entertaining reviews like that. So please give us five stars and then just be brutal because it's, it's always fun to see. Um, so anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Yeah.